Let's, tell, let's stay in Ecclesiastes. We're starting a new series. We finished up the Sermon on the Mount yesterday, or last week, rather, uh, uh, at Easter. We're starting a new series. And man, this one is going to be different. It's going to be uh, a lot of fun. It's, it's a little darker than, than normal. I don't know if you were picking it up. I think as we read the Bible, sometimes we, we're used to having stuff that we don't understand. And so we just kind of go, okay, yeah, that's weird. Like, I don't know why I said that, but I'm sure... It'll make sense later, or Jordan will explain it. But like, if you're listening as Tara's reading, you're like, man, this dude's having a bad day, right? Like, what? He's just like a grumpy old dude, just talking about, like, oh, what's the point, right? Like, that's kind of how it starts out here, um, is, is what's the point? Like, this is hard. Life is hard. One author wrote that this is the only book in the Bible we know for sure was written on a Monday morning. Uh, probably by a philosophy major that didn't have coffee that day, right? Like, he's just a little crabby, it seems. Like, he's just, but, but here's, here's the good news. Here's, here's why I love it. Here, here's the journey. We've always kind of been known for, for being a little, like, we're a little bit raw, a little bit edgy in the sense that we, we don't shy away from hard things. Like, we acknowledge hard things. If you have hard stuff going on in your life, like, come on, we'll, we'll love on you. We'll walk you through it. And, and, uh, and, I, and that's not to say other churches don't, but I, I just, I think that Solomon, who wrote this book, I think he, I think he liked the journey. I think he liked uh, our, our style. Like it, it's okay to just, just to own and, and acknowledge the hardness of life, the frustrating, and even even like monotonous, pointless kind of stuff that you have to deal with with life. So Ecclesiastes is going to go there. He's going to go there. He's going to ask hard questions. He's going to look at things um, honestly. He's going to say things that all of us have thought at different times that you probably, like, honestly, if you're thinking about this, you're like, man, I don't think we should say this at church. Like, this seems a little pessimistic, especially the week after Easter, right? Like, it's a, it, it seems a little harsh, but, but there's good news in that because he's acknowledging the things that we often think, that we often struggle with. He's just going to go there, and he's not going to give us religious platitudes for an, an explanation. He's not just going to say, well, yeah, I mean, he'll work all things out for the good. And, and that's not true. I don't mean to make light of that, but sometimes things are just really hard. And we need somebody to just sit with us and be frustrated with us and, and, and cry with us. And, and if we get just a kind of a flippant platitude thrown at us, it feels like disingenuous. He's not afraid to go there. He, he's going to sit with us. He's going to look at um, some really honest questions. And honestly, he's going to confront us. The, the real point of this book is to confront us with the reality and, and of the pointlessness of life. Like, he's going to confront us and challenge us not to look for our purpose in stuff here on earth. He's going to destroy, he's going to come at us to destroy our pretenses. And so, so he's going to offer a very earthy perspective on human life. Okay, so, so this book of the Bible is going, to, is going to talk a lot about life, like a very, very down to earth, like rubber meets the road. What about this part of life? And, and honestly, this book, it's curious. It doesn't fit real well in the rest of the Bible. In fact, some like, people throughout the ages have kind of wanted to get rid of it. Like, uh, and, and really, there's not a lot of people who preach through it. Um, like, not a lot of commentate, like, not a lot of commentaries. My favorite commentary, like, didn't even, they didn't even touch it. I pulled it up. I was like, click, and there's nothing there. Like, they didn't even touch it. They just moved on, right? Like, there's not a lot of people that, that have, have really, and it's hard to understand. It, 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 it seems at times to contradict itself, but you have to know what he's saying. You have to understand the literary style. But, but I think if, if you take an honest look at it, which we're going to do, we're going to spend several weeks in this, we'll see that it offers a, a bit of a balance to the, the part of Christianity that is sometimes tempted, um, as Ian Proven looks, to, to just focus on like what's to come. And, and, and fails to teach us how to live here and now. 
And so let me just read a quote from Proven. He says, in focusing our attention on this life rather than the next, indeed, this, book's, this book contributes the correction of the all too frequent imbalance throughout the ages in Christian thinking, which has sometimes presented Christianity as if it were more a matter of waiting for something than a matter of living. So he's going to talk about, okay, yes, we're, our future is heaven. We're headed there. And that should transform our present, but not in the way that we just kind of, okay, okay, one day it'll be over, but actually transforms like what we do and, and how we go to work and, and how we approach relationships and what we look to get out of things. Like he's going to get really honest and really practical, but he's, it's going to kind of do it in a, in a philosophical way, if you will. Like uh, a lot of, you know, you're probably taught that uh, philosophy started with the Greeks, right? And, and Plato and those guys, Socrates, and, and honestly, long before them, Solomon's here writing this book, right? He, he like, at least with him, he's, if, if maybe you can make the case even Job was uh, getting at some philosophy, but, but at least with him, he, this is a very philosophical book. And so he's going to look at it from that perspective. He's going to force us to think about things that we don't often think about, okay? So, so that's, that's the, a little bit of the overview. We'll get a little bit more layered on of, of kind of background as we look at each part of this, because this is written by a man named Solomon, as we'll see here in verse one, and, and his life lends itself to being able to speak to different pieces. And so as we do that, we'll look at a little bit of kind of why he's able to talk about those things. But, but for today, this is going to be a bit of an introduction, and his opening kind of poem and statement that Tara just read for us kind of sets up the rest of the book, which he'll then kind of go a little bit deeper and unpack further and further as we go along. So Let's look at, at verse 1 of chapter 1 in Ecclesiastes, and it tells us who is talking. Um, and there's a little bit of debate about this, but, but simply what the Bible says here is the words of the preacher. Okay? Um, um, it, in other translations, it might say koalath, it might say collector, it might say teacher, right? But in the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So what we know, that the, the idea of koalath is one who gathers a people to, to speak to them, right? So it's some form of a teacher, preacher, somebody who's, who's addressing a crowd, okay? So uh, that, that's at least some of the context. Most would, would assume that this was written probably to an aristocracy like the higher ups in the, in the government agency originally, like the people who would be kind of surrounding him as king, We'll see in just a minute. And so it's written to them. He's speaking at least somewhat directly to them. But what we're going to see is there's kind of two people. Like there's, there's the preacher, the one who's kind of giving the content. And then there's kind of the, the author or the narrator that will make commentary about it. So this book is unique. It doesn't come out and explicitly say that it was written by Solomon, who we're, we're going we're gonna, to um, believe that, that most of it at least is, is derived from him or, or speaking directly from him. But it, it has a particular purpose in mind. And, it, and so it doesn't come out and say, hey, this is Solomon's experiment on life. But the rest of the verse one actually gives us that evidence. It says he's the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Now, to be sure, the idea of being a son of David is something that is referred to any of the, the kings that would come in the lineage of David, even to Jesus, right? Jesus is the son of David. He comes from the line of David. But this, this seems to be, um, again, all the context points to this is likely Solomon, who was actually David's son. He was David's son with Bathsheba. Now, if you don't know any of this story, just a little bit of context. Who we're talking about here is King David was, was uh, not the first king, but he was the first like, God-anointed like good king that really led Israel into a season of flourishing. David was an amazing man. He wrote much of the Psalms. 
Um, he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who actually also was, was called a man after God's own heart, but also sinned deeply. And many of you know the story. In fact, I'd say most of the world has, has heard the story, if you've been around Western Christianity at all, of David um, making a mess and sleeping with Bathsheba, and then, um, which was not his wife. Right? He had wives, plural, but he, but he saw a woman bathing and he wanted to have her as well because he wasn't where he's supposed to be, right? So David is a man after God's own heart, but he messes up greatly. And it leads to him actually going as far, not only committing adultery and sleeping with this woman, but now she's pregnant, so he's got to cover that up. And, and he covers that up by trying to get her, her husband to come home and sleep with her so nobody will notice, but then he won't do it. And so he has him killed. That's right, a dark season in David's life and in Israel. And ends up marrying this woman, Bathsheba, bringing her in. That child, conceived from that affair, ends up dying. But another child comes along through that marriage between David and Bathsheba, and his name is Solomon. And he is chosen by God to carry on the lineage of David. And so he's raised by David and Bathsheba. He is a chosen one of God to carry on the line. In fact, there are things that God intends to do with Israel that he actually doesn't allow David to do, like build the temple. So David uh, is, is planning. He's got, he's got Israel set up now. If you know the, the story, they've been uh, you know, wandering in the desert, and they've been trying to conquer their, their enemies uh, you know, in the promised land. And David does all of that, and now he's ready. To, he says, God, I want to build you a house. And, and God says, I don't need you to build me a house, uh, uh, but your son will be allowed to build me a house. You've got too much blood on your hands. And so Solomon is the one who's allowed to build the temple of God. So and Solomon comes into reign. There's this incredible story where God gives him a chance to, to ask for anything he wants, almost like a genie-like moment. It's a really peculiar story in the Bible. It says, hey, you, you asked me for something, and, and I'll give it to you. And, and Solomon asked for, it's famous in the story, he asked for wisdom. And God is so pleased with that request from Solomon that he didn't ask for wealth or you know, long days of life or flourishing in other ways. He asked for wisdom. And because he asked for wisdom, he was pleased with him, and God gave him wisdom and all of those other things. It's an incredible story, and you can read about it in uh, the book of, of Kings and, and First Kings and, and Chronicles and Second Samuel. You, you'll find a lot about Solomon's life um, in in the Bible, and so he is is brought into reign. He, he becomes the wisest man that we know in history, second only to Jesus. Jesus refers to to Solomon, and obviously his wisdom comes from him. So second only to Jesus, why, uh, Solomon is the wisest man to ever live. He has a rule and a reign of peace that is uh, unmatched, and, and kings and queens come from all over the world to behold the kingdom of Israel, and particularly the, the king who's ruling over it, King Solomon. So he has this incredible reign, and, and he, um, he has this life that is, is really blessed and really um, just, just given favor by God. But, like his father, he messes stuff up. Um, he's told by his father, by God, through his father, hey, don't, don't commit adultery. Don't marry a bunch of foreign women. Don't marry foreign women at all. Because they'll lead your heart astray. What does he do? He, he marries foreign women. This guy uh, has 700 wives. Imagine that. That's a lot of relational management there, right? And then 300 concubines, which is just like, yeah, girlfriends. It's a mess. There's a lot of drama. Like this dude could, could eat a different meal with a different woman every day the whole year. Like breakfast, lunch, and dinner have a different woman, right? 
You imagine the vying for time, the, you know, the calendar conflicts. I mean, it's just a mess, right? There's a lot. So 700, this guy, and he's wealthy beyond measure, beyond imagine. His home, like, it's crazy. He has the world's goods at his disposal. But the women, particularly the foreign women, lead his heart astray, and he spends a season not worshiping God. Obviously, the season whenever he's accruing wives and turning his heart away. And so, uh, it, it's speculated, and it's not known for sure when he wrote this, but it, it's speculated that, that Solomon may have written Ecclesiastes as a bit of a repentance toward the end of his life. So he wrote Song of Solomon as well, which is a book about love. And so it, it seems that he wrote that as a young man, falling in love with his original wife, like, and, and, he's, and he's just beaming with this gift that God has given him. And he writes the Song of Solomon. We have that in our Bible as a treasure to, to teach us about uh, love between a man and a woman, and 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 so, and then he and then he writes many of the proverbs, and he accrues them over over the course of his life, just wise sayings and things for us to to live by, right? Uh, and then it would it would sort of make sense again speculation, but I think it makes sense that he writes Ecclesiastes as a bit of a prodigal son moment where he he's kind of returning to the Lord, where he he's he's done all of these other things, and and he's and he's tried. He's actually what you're going to see is he actually kind of tries everything else because he can. See, he's not that different than you and I, or rather you and I are not that different than him. He just has the means, right? There's things that you think, if I just had this, then I'd be happy. I'd really like to try this. If I could just get to this level, then I I would be happy. I don't need to be like so-and-so. I just need to get here, right? We all have that in us, but but we have to keep striving, and so it just keeps kicking it down the road. And, And so we live life thinking, if we just get to this level, well, Solomon had no barriers, no obstacles, no lack of funds. And so anything he wanted to do, anything he set his mind to, anything he thought about, any whim he had, he could do it. And so he spends a season of his life just, just trying to figure out, like we're going to see later, like he just kind of sets his mind, like, okay, what, what, I'm going to figure out what's good about this life. And he sees that it's, there's actually nothing, Right? Um, and so then he writes this book. Suppose, I mean, he could have written it at a different time, but nonetheless, this is where this is coming from. Solomon, king in Jerusalem, son of David. Okay, so um, th- this may sound a little bit like, again, as you read it, like a, like a grumpy old man speaking and just, just frustrated and angry. And like, what's the point? But, and maybe it is some of that, but I think it might be more helpful to see this as a, actually a a wise, repentant old man who, who's actually quite relaxed now and understands what life's actually about and is willing to sit down with us younger folks and, and share his wisdom. He's no longer driven by the angst of the ticking time of his life and instead understands what life is about, and, he, and he's willing to walk us through it. He's willing to give us that truth, that advice. He's, he's willing to to share with us what he's learned. And so um, this is an incredible man. It's hard to really wrap your mind around the the, the stature that this man would have. Like, if if we take, like, one of the richest people in the world, you think of, like, a a Bill Gates, right? And and then you think of um, one of the smartest people in the world, you think of, like, an Albert Einstein, and then you think of one of the people who has just been able to just indulge in sensuality to his heart's content, maybe like a Hugh Hefner. Right? And if you can combine them into one person, and then he's going to write a tell-all. He, he's going to say, okay, this is what I figured out. I've tried it all. I've, I know it all. I've tried it all. Here's what life's about. It's, it's sort of like that. 
sort of like that. Like, this is a man who we would want to hear from, is my point. I'm not trying to, I mean, it is messy. I'm not trying to correlate Solomon with Hugh Hefner, right? That's going to get me in trouble. But, but I think he did it himself. He's got a thousand women, so y'all deal with that. But the point is we'd want to hear from this man, right? You would want to know what he has to say, especially a man who's repentant and, and hearing from God on the other side. So what does he say? What's his, what's his thesis? What does he get at? Well, verse 2, vanity of vanities. This is what it says about life. Says the preacher, vanity of vanities. All of it is vanity. Like, well, all right, thanks, bro. Like, what, what am I supposed to do with that, right? Well, this word, this is, this is setting the stage. This is, uh, this is forming a foundation or a thesis, really, for the rest of the book. This word, vanity, might be translated in your, in your Bible as meaningless or uh, futile or, or a few other things, but the, the, the Hebrew word is hebel. And and it really, it, it literally means uh, sort of a, a, a vapor or a mist, I think, um, or kind of a mere breath, right? So it has a literal translation of, of those things that, that is just kind of like, it, it's that idea of a vapor, mist, mere breath. But, but metaphorically, it, it's something that is fleeting or elusive, enigmatic even. It's something that appears to have substance, but when you would try to grasp at it, 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 it it's sort of... Yeah, just take that down. That's a mess. I must have brought that in wrong. Sorry, Miranda. Um, but it seems, to, it, it, it seems to have substance, but as you grasp at it, it slips right through your fingers. So your, your, your scripture may say meaningless, and that, that certainly has its bearing. But I think this idea of vanity gets a, a better grip. This is hard to translate. Like There's a lot of ink spilled trying to talk about what exactly it means, and it has nuances in different contexts. But, but I think the word vanity is better than meaningless because rather than suggesting that it's just zero meaning, right? it has no meaning at all, it emphasizes the fleeting kind of nature of life, right? the, the temporal um, you know, sense of, okay, it's here, and you think, it, you think it's going to have something, but as you try to wrap your hands around it, it, it seems to sort of slip away. So this word is, is going to appear 38 times in the book. So 38 times in the book. Five of them are right there in verse 2, right? So right out of the gate, he wants us to be clear. This is what he has observed about life. So vanity, vanity, all is vanity. All is futile. All is, it's like a vapor. It doesn't matter what you're trying to, to get life out of. It, it's, not going to, it's not going to be there. It's like chasing the wind. It, it's... Temporal at best. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's he saying? What's the point? This is a, this is a guy saying, what's the point? Like, why do I do what I do? Why do I get up in the morning? Why do I, like, what, what do we get out of this? You ever, you ever had somebody ask you that? You're just in a, just in a funk? This is probably not where I'd tell anybody to start in reading the Bible. Right? Somebody's just checking out Christianity, like, what should I read? I'm like, well, I'll check out Ecclesiastes. It'll make it, you know, no, like, I might end up depressed, right? You got to have some context. You got to know what's going on here, right? So he's like, what's the point? What do you get? You spend all this time working, right? You spend all this time trying to, to raise a family, all this time trying to live a good life. And then what do you get? What does man gain by all the toil <clears throat> at which he toils under the sun. Now that phrase is also key. Okay, so there's two key phrases, vanity and under the sun. Okay, so he is going to go on at length now to observe things under the sun on earth. And so when he says all of it under like when what what good is it under the sun? Like he's literally saying 
All of it is pointless. All of it is vanity. It's not just a regional depression issue here in Southern Illinois. It's everywhere. It's all the things are, are vanity. So there's a, there's a literal like unpacking there. But then it also, at the same time, suggests a potential alternative way of viewing the world. Because if everything under the sun is futile, then perhaps getting over the sun, getting above the sun, and perhaps seeing things through a lens that is not about this earthly stuff will bring some meaning to this life. And so that's what he's going to begin to unpack over and over again. But he's going to make his case as we go on in verses 4 through 11, just, just making some observations. He's like, you think I'm just being grumpy? You think I'm just like, just not a happy guy? I want you to observe with me. Think about life. So verse 4, he goes, a generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. What's he saying? He's like, listen, somebody came before you, you're going to leave, and somebody's going to come after you. And the earth just remains here. you got trees in your yard, likely, that are older than you, a few generations. They've seen you come and go. Right? The hills, I, we were at Fern Cliff with my kids the other day, and just the, the vastness of just those, and those are, those are minor in the scheme of, of the world's like mountains and cliffs, but, but just, just the vastness of those rocks and that the, the, the earth sits and, and just kind of, he, it just kind of smiles at us because it knows we're going to be gone and it'll still be here. We were supposed to rule over this earth, right? Back in Genesis, like we were made to rule over it and, and yet now we're going to be passing through and it's going to sit and, and watch as we, as we go. So he says, a generation comes, a generation goes. Listen, we've all been guilty of thinking that we are the generation that's going to fix something, right? We're the generation, like, we, we all kind of, like, most of us kind of have this view it, generationally. That's why we have the generational divide, Generation X, Millennials, and, you know, Gen Z, and all these things. And we talk about the, the, the characteristics that come out of them. We kind of fuss about the younger generations, don't we? And, but when you're in that younger generation, you sort of think that, that you've evolved a little bit further, and that the people before you they're a little back on the evolutionary chart. And, they, you know, they tried. They did their best. But they didn't really, like, they didn't have, they didn't know what we know, right? Like, we have more information. We're, we're woke now. Like, we got, like, we, we're, we're going to fix this world, right? This is why young people are more um, prone to, like, just have a cause. Young people work more on political campaigns, right? They, they want to see something happen. They want to have a purpose to life. They're, they're more energetic about changing social issues, right? Like, because we, we, we think when we're young, like, okay, we, we know better. Our parents, like, they tried, bless their hearts, but like, we know better. We're going to get this figured out. Solomon goes, eh, no, you're not. Nice try, buddy, right? You might get some things right. Right? You might make th some things better, but other things are going to devolve. I was going to say later, there's really nothing new. It's just a different flavor. It's just a different look. And so he's just saying, man, a generation comes, a generation goes. But the earth remains forever. Like, we and our lives are futile. We're, we're, we're fleeting. We're, we're like a vapor, right? Okay, so it goes on. He says, the sun rises, and it goes down, and then it hastens back to the place where it rises. Sun comes up, and it goes down. And then it comes back in the morning. But if you look, my footnote says uh, in, about the, the word hastens, it says, and returns panting. I'm like, yeah, man, the night's never long enough, is it? You notice how time goes a, little, goes a lot faster when you're trying to sleep. 
Maybe it's just because I got little kids and don't want to sleep right now. But like it, the, the sun seems to get back up faster than it got down, right? Like it, 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 the night, it moves quick. He says the sun comes up, it goes down, and it races back or returns panting back to where it rises. Days go fast. Well, days, sometimes days are long, but then the years go fast. Like it, it just, it comes and goes. And before you know it, time is, is just slipping away. He goes on to say, the wind blows to the south and it goes back around to the north. Around and around the wind goes on its circuit. The wind returns. The wind blew by. Did it have any particular purpose? Nope. It's just going back around the earth and it's going to come back again. He, he's just saying there's this repetitive circular nature to life that he's observing in all these things. Verse seven, as the streams run, all streams run to the sea. But the sea is not full. <laughs> He's going, what's the point? Right? Like, rain falls, like, runs off in, ends up in a river, right? We're in between two rivers. Anybody run the river to river yesterday? It's crazy. But, right? You got a river over here, river, like, they're headed to the ocean. Right? Rain, it's raining a ton right now. It ends up in the river. It all, it goes there. But he, so it, all the rivers run to the ocean, but the ocean's never full. It gets in there, it evaporates up, goes back into the clouds, falls down again, starts the cycle over and over again. He says, what's the point? The rivers all run to the ocean, but the ocean's never full. The place where streams flow, there they flow again. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. He says, I don't even have the words. I can't even. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. But he's saying, like, I can't even describe to you the frustrating nature of life. Like, it, I don't have words for it. Like, there's no point. What's it, what's it for? All things. Everything's full of meaningless. Everything's full of vanity. All things. What's the deal? It's, it just makes me tired. He's just tired. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. What, what are you going to do? Maybe I'll watch some TV. It'll make me feel better. Right? Next, Netflix just keeps playing. One more episode, never enough, is it? Just keeps playing. It can go darker than that. Pornography. The eyes have never seen enough. You never find the perfect image. You'll never be satisfied with that. The eye is never full, it's never satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Like he's going to talk about knowledge later in the book. Like it's just never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough. Like you won't, it won't happen. It just is going to make you tired. Verse nine, what has been is what will be. Like the way things are is the way things are going to be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new, again, under the sun. He's saying like this, this life is what it is. Seems dark, seems hard. There's nothing new under the sun. We're going to come back to that. But is there anything, of, verse 10, is there anything of which you said, see, this is new? This is it. This is it. This, this has changed everything. And you might be like, well, yeah, I mean, you got like cell phones. We've got a lot of technology. But yeah, but, 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 but really, has it changed anything? It's made us more connected. But humanity at large, like, the, the, again, Fern Cliff's still just grinning at you, right? The world, like, the earth is still just there. Like, it, it's, it, it is already in the ages, it's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after it. He says, listen, there's just really nothing that's going to, to be that substantial that you should bank your life on. And he goes on and says, and nobody's going to remember it. 
You might accomplish great things. Good for you. You'll be forgotten. Let's just do this real quick. How many of you guys can honestly tell me the first name of your great-great-grandpa? Raise your hand if you can. Like six of you, because you did like the, the DNA thing. You spit in a cup and sent it off, didn't you? That's why you know. You, can go, you got a chart and go all the way back. The rest of us, it's like, oh, dang. And you feel a little bad, don't you? You're like, I should know that. I got great-grandpa's name. I was like, I don't know. That's just a couple generations ago, guys. They're forgotten. You, you're their kids. You forgot them. Like, I don't know what pretense you have about how the world's going to remember you. They're not. That's what he's saying. Like, sorry. They'll forget you. Like, come to grips with it. This guy is harsh, isn't he? Like, man, dude, thought you could pet me up today. He's like, no, just real talk today. Just, just, just going to be honest. Just, just harsh, real talk. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this seemingly grouchy old man or maybe just frustratingly chill old man who isn't anxious about life anymore? I want you to think about it, though. I, I, want, you to, I want you to think about what he's saying. Do you think about these words? How kind is it of our God to put this in the Bible? Right? Like, most of us haven't been around churches or religious homes where it was okay to ask these kind of questions. Right? Like, like th these kinds of questions were, were quickly, like, kind of dismissed and shut down, like, li like, let alone encouraged or addressed. Like, we were probably given some dismissive answers and, and told to have faith, right? Because God's going to work everything out for the good, right? Which is true, but it, we don't have to be dismissive about these struggles. Like, the Bible has space for us to be honest about life. The Bible has space for, for our complex emotions, our complex feelings, our frustrations. This book is super confusing, if I'm being honest. I kind of regretted preaching it. I was like, I don't know, man. Maybe we should just do a, a, an epistle, right? Like, I don't know. This is going to be hard. But the Bible says it's good. It says it's helpful, so we're going to dive in. But, but the book is complex. The book is confusing because it's talking about life, and life is complex, and it's confusing, isn't it? And Solomon's going to go there with us. He's going to enter in and, and, and remind us that God isn't scared of that. He isn't, God isn't scared to acknowledge the pain and the confusion, the evil that exists in the world. In fact, God grieves it with us. That's why we say every week, you don't have to pretend. You don't have to pretend to be doing better than you are. It's okay to ask questions. Our, our, the posture of our questions matters a lot. A lot of people are asking questions in today's world. Right? A lot of people are asking questions that are leading to what we would call, or what they are calling, deconstruction. But, but again, the posture of those questions matter. Because he's asking questions here. And we see Job is asking questions in the book of Job. We see even John the Baptist ask questions toward the end of his life. He's like, man, I've been a true believer. I've been all in. But when things got hard, he's like, I, I just, can I just know? Can you just, can I just ask this? So questions aren't wrong, but the posture of our questions matter. Because if, if we're just asking so that we can genuinely understand and believe, I think God welcomes those questions. But if we're asking in a way that we're, we're trying to poke holes in something so that we can justify the way we want to live, okay, well, those are different questions. 
Right? If, we, if we know that we just want to latch on to life this way and we don't want to be restrained by the morals of, of, of this Christianity, so we're going to poke holes in, in this part of the Bible or this part of, the, of our faith, okay, th- those are different questions. But, but Solomon here is saying it's okay to ask questions. God is okay with acknowledging the futility and the frustration of life. So his point is not to get us to some place as Christians where we just serve up some platitude of optimism with every comment about life, right? Like following Christ doesn't pluck you out of the boring and repetitive and mundane stuff of life, does it? Like if you're a new Christian, you're like, man, you get this jolt of life and you're all in and then you realize like, I still gotta go to work on Monday. I still gotta cut this grass. I just cut it. Freaking dandelions, Right? Like you're like, man, I, I, I want to do, do so much for the Lord. I want to do so much for the kingdom. But you're like, I, I got to go mow. I got I to gotta, I gotta fix this house, right? Like that homeowning feels very futile to me. I'm like, ah, why is everything? Like there's more doors to fix. Like and I can't, I get one fixed and my kids have broke something else. I'm like, this is, I kind of want to rent again. Just make this somebody else's problem, right? Like it seems really futile to me. There's a lot to do. So, so following Christ doesn't pluck you out of that stuff of life. You're still going, yeah. The sun comes up, goes back down, right back up the next morning demanding more of me. You could snooze. It's that, man. How many, how many of y'all, like me, struggle with, with, with getting up in the morning because like, you, you really believe if you just had a little bit more sleep? Sleep's a, that's a lion. That's, that's a lie, isn't it? I started thinking about it. That's a lie, right? How many of you, like... How many of you have ever been glad you slept in? All right. You guys are single. All right. No, I'm just kidding. Slept longer than you meant to. Let me put it that way. How many of you have been glad you slept longer than you meant to? All right, Jared. I see you. But, so you, you always believe, like, if I just do, but I've never regretted getting up. Never regretted doing what I need to do, like getting up, reading the Bible, working out. Like I'm always like, man, it's a better day. But in the moment, like it, it seems, and, and that's the fleeting nature of life. Like it seems like if I could just get this, then it would satisfy me. But it doesn't. It just continues in this cycle. So following Jesus doesn't take us out of that, but it does free us from trying to pretend that those things matter when they don't, or even to pretend that they don't stink and that they don't hurt and they don't drive us nuts. We don't have to pretend that that, that you know that those things aren't affecting us. See, without God, under the sun, without God, just doing life without a perspective of eternity, your life isn't going to have any meaning. That's what he's saying. You're not going to find it. It doesn't matter how good it goes. It doesn't matter what you get. Like, it's not going to be there. And without the understanding that God is working toward eternal purposes, you're not going to be able to see the purpose or even believe that your life has any purpose. Okay, so when you don't have an eternal perspective, when when Jesus hasn't changed your heart and, and flipped your hope into eternity, you, you're not going to find any true purpose and fulfillment in this life. And it's actually in discovering this that life is pointless, that that will actually free you from having to understand every decision and every event that happens in your life. You see what I'm saying? If you're trying to get to a place that you put on the map, if you're trying to get to, to something that you think will satisfy you, then everything that doesn't go your way will cause you to be so frustrated and so discouraged and you'll question God's goodness and you'll question your ability and you question every little decision, every little event. But when you're honest and, and you just go here with Solomon and go, listen, life's just gonna do its thing. 
and there's not always going to be explanations. That frees you from having to find meaning in all of those things and instead points you to the one who brings meaning to you and will use you in all those things. Let's, let's listen to Augustine here as we near the end. Uh, Augustine writes in his book, The City of God, um, that the, the, the point of Solomon's book here, the reason he writes this was to fully expose the emptiness of life with the ultimate objective to be sure of making us yearn for another kind of life. Okay, so he says the reason he's going to push so hard at exposing the emptiness of life is, is to make us yearn for another kind of life, which is no unsubstantial shadow under the sun, but rather a substantial reality under the sun's creator. So when we go there with Solomon, when we face up to the observations that he's making here, that there actually isn't anything new, nothing substantial, nothing of reward, nothing remembered. But like this, this blanket and dark observation that he's making actually makes us long for the stark contrast that Jesus actually brings in, that Jesus actually breathes onto us. The new thing is Jesus. Jesus says, I'm making all things new. We just celebrated Easter. That is the new thing, right? Solomon doesn't have that in his context, in his view. He, he believes in redemptive history. He knows God is doing something, but he, he doesn't see the, the, the fullness of what Jesus was going to accomplish. And, and so now Jesus shows up, and, and that is the new and, and the thing that will be remembered. That is the thing that gives us purpose in life, when we come to believe that, that Jesus brings us into the new covenant and gives us new birth, new life, and new commandment, then we enter into a new workforce, as one commentator says. And now what we do actually does matter, and it's done for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God, and our labor is not in vain, as it says in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and Psalm 112. Like, it, it breathes purpose and life onto our futile, otherwise futile existence. So in a sense, what, what Solomon is doing here in Ecclesiastes is taking a really, really deep dive and a close look into Jesus' famous words that are recorded in multiple Gospels. But let's look at Mark 8 together. Mark 8, 34. Jesus says similar, like it, this is kind of a thesis statement that, that, that Solomon's going to drive even deeper into. Because Solomon ends this book, the, the sum of the matter, he says, what I figured out, the, the, the end of it all, what are you, what are you supposed to do? What, what's the point of life? He says, fear God. Do what he says. Fear God. Do what he says. Jesus in Mark 8 says this, calling to the crowd with him, or calling to the crowd uh, to him with his disciples, he said to them, he says, this is Jesus' words. He says, hey, if you're going to follow me, if anybody come after me, let them deny themselves, take up his cross, and actually follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. And then Jesus says, like Solomon, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You see, Jesus is pressing us to the same place of acknowledging that, hey, life's not going to get us there. Life under the sun is pointless. Jesus says, go ahead and think about it. Go ahead, try. Think about it. What's it going to get you? 
What's it going to get you if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? This is Solomon's point. He's saying, listen, if you're trying to get something out of life, you're going to milk it and realize there's no milk there. You're going to dig that well and realize it's a dry cistern that won't hold water. It's not going to get you there. But Jesus says, hey, you want to find your life? Lay it down and pick up me. Come follow me. Pick up your cross. Instead of pursuing the prosperity that the world tells you will satisfy you, pick, lay all that down and pick up your cross, the cross of suffering, the cross of hardship, the cross of loving God at all costs. And there, there, you'll find it, life. There you'll save it. There you'll get substance. There you'll shift from, from grasping at vapor that, that seems to be there, but you just can't hold on to it, to, to having something of substance, to building your house on the rock, to having a treasure that actually fuels the rest of your life, that gives you purpose. This is the gospel. It, it's bad news first in many ways, right? Like to press us to acknowledge that, hey, life is pointless. But then to, to say, but, but I've come that you may actually have life. Abundant life. That's the good news of the gospel. Solomon is giving us a, a jump start. He's giving us the cheat codes to life. He's, he's helping us because, listen, we can hear this, but all of us, if we're honest, are kind of like the, the stubborn adolescent who still thinks we know better than mom and dad, right? Like mom and dad said so, but we still think, yeah, but. So Solomon's going to go on through this book and look at work. He's going to look at pleasure. He's going to look at, at uh Money. He's going to look at all of these things that our world tells us will satisfy us, and he's going to deconstruct them and consistently point us back to God. As Sandra Richter put it, uh, th this is the, the man who had it all, Solomon, discovered that actually having it all nearly destroyed him. But fortunately for us, when he climbs the golden ladder of ultimate success and looks over the brink, he actually has the wherewithal. Listen to the beauty of this story. He actually has the wherewithal to step back from the edge, climb back down, and tell the rest of us, there's nothing up here. She says that's Solomon here in Ecclesiastes. The man who has it all, who's able to, to try it all, actually gets to that level that we think that would actually be bliss and actually be awesome. He gets up there, he looks over the edge, and God gives him the grace to step back down and look at us and write the book of Ecclesiastes and say, there's nothing up there. Don't, don't bother. Don't try to climb this ladder thinking you're going to find life. There's nothing up there. When we lean in and, and hear from him, this becomes great and freeing news. But it's going to take a little bit. Right? We, we have to sit with him and, and, and look for the good news in this because he's being a bit pessimistic. He's, being really, he's a real realist here. So he wants us to, all of this, he says life's pointless, but actually he wants us to learn to enjoy life. You realize that? That what he's doing is, is actually helping teach us to reverse engineer our life, to think about the end, that actually, as one author put it, that, that learning that the death is inevitable, that life is fleeting, is actually the first step in learning how to live. That learning that death will come to all of us is the first step in learning how to live. That, that realizing the end, realizing the futility, realizing that the world's just going to keep going actually helps us know how to live in the moment. Actually knows, it teaches us how to enjoy this. This is, this is Solomon is sort of looking at the person who's always taking pictures, like always doing life through a camera. I think Apple had a commercial about this. 
a couple years ago. Always doing life through a camera, trying to capture it, make it epic or whatever. And, and meanwhile, you run the risk of missing it. And, and trying to capture it, you actually miss it. How many of y'all have taken a video at a concert with your phone? You don't want to admit it. How many of y'all have watched that video? Right? Like you just, you just, you just, like you don't. He's saying, put the phone down. Just watch. Just enjoy. Just eat your food. We don't need to see it. <laughs> just eat it. That's, that's kind of what he, he's snapping us out of it. Like, hey, no, this, this life, it, it, it's not transcendent. It's not going to give you that, that, you know, substance that you think it is. But actually, Jesus can. And when you get Jesus, now you're able to enjoy these things about life. So there's, there's no particular point to your life. Like, there's no, nothing that's going to be remembered likely about what you do. But you can enjoy it. Like, the world is going to keep spinning when you die, like, it's going to keep going. And millions of others have already taken their turn, and millions of others are going to take their turn after. Your life is not going to be that special. It's not going to stand out that much. But, but, this is your turn. This is your life. And you actually can enjoy it. And that's the gift. To realize, hey, I don't have to try to milk something out of this life that it's never going to be able to produce but once I realize that Jesus gives me hope, gives me purpose, and fuels everything backwards, okay, now I can actually enjoy this time with my spouse, enjoy this time with my kids or with my family or whoever you got. Like, I, I can enjoy it. Even if it doesn't look like other people or what I think it should or the, what the world says it should, I can actually enjoy it. It frees us to enjoy life. That's the purpose. That's the point. He says, you're simply not going to find life here under the sun. But in Jesus, you find somebody who was over the sun and stepped into our mess to bring us new life, to bring us purpose, right? So here, as we close, if you're here and you're checking out church and Jesus in general, you're wondering about this Christianity thing, here's what Solomon wants you to know. Jesus is the only thing that transcends this monotony and this brokenness. That's what these crazy Christians just celebrated last week on Easter. That Jesus breaks through that monotony, that fallenness of life. Listen, the good news is, is you're not alone. We all feel it. We all feel the pressure of life. We all feel that, that life isn't, isn't what it should be. Things aren't what they should be, right? Life isn't fair. Life isn't easily explained, right? Like, we all feel that. You're not alone. It's not just you. But the good news is that Jesus stepped into that. That Jesus did something new. That Jesus brought revolution into that monotony. He says, I'm making all things new. Behold, look at it. Like, I'm making all things new. You, you, and you, yourself, can join that list of things that he's making new. You can have new life. You can have purpose. You can have substance to your life. Jesus paints the picture this way. He says, the kingdom, it's like somebody who was working in a field and finds a treasure, and it's so rich and it's so amazing that they go back, they, they hide it again, and they go and sell everything else they have so they can just have that one thing. That's the kind of power that the gospel and the kingdom has over us. When we see Jesus for who he is, it transforms everything else. It puts everything else in its place and says, I don't even need that stuff. If I can get that, I'll have life. That's the, that's the offer that Jesus says. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Well, Jesus, you're going to make me rich and, and wealthy and healthy? No. You may still be just as poor. You may still have the cancer. You may still struggle with the same th stuff of life, but you will have life. 
You can have a hope beyond this life. You can have a substance to your existence. Your suffering won't be in vain. You can have a hope beyond this deal. So placing your faith in Jesus can put you on the list of things that he's making new. It can take you out of the monotony and the rut of, of Ecclesiastes here and, and give you purpose, give you meaning in your life. So in other words, as Jesus says, laying down your life, surrendering to him as the resurrected Savior, letting him take your pointless life and redeem it. That's the, the offer that Jesus comes to you with today. That will give you hope beyond the sun, and that will allow you to enjoy life here while we're under the sun. All right. Hey, keep coming back. We're going to look at different layers of this meaningless life as we go on. But, but today, know that but none of it, like it's not going to be wisdom that will just add to your life and self-help that if I just implement this piece, I'll do better. No, no. The whole point is acknowledge that life will not give you meaning the way that you hope it will, but Jesus can. Jesus is the only one. He's the one that transcends that. So if you haven't accepted him, today's the day. The Bible says you, you, you simply confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, that you need him to be your savior because you're a sinner. And he says, you shall be saved. Like You'll, you'll be saved. Surrender your life to him. You'll be made new. Let's pray. God, we come to you humbled by this truth that you um, empowered your servant Solomon to uh, relate to us, and we ask that you would help it to sink into our hearts and do the work that you would have it accomplished this morning, that you would set us free from monotony, that you would set us free from purposeless lives, and instead that you would pluck us out of that and 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 redeem our hearts and change our hearts in such a way that we can step back in to what seems like a pointless life and actually enjoy it and have joy because we have you. So do what you, do what you would. Have your way with us during this time of response. Jesus, it's in your name we pray.